It is uh, <clears throat> it's good to see so many here this morning, and, and not just because it's cold outside. Um, after last week's sermon where we looked at the reality of sin in Isaiah 1 through 5, you just always hope people will come back again. Um, and especially, especially this morning as we're, uh, as we're really kind of given the, the second part of that, the conclusion of that, talking about uh, God's grace. Um, you know, I said last week, it wasn't a sermon, that, a sermon that I was necessarily joyfully looking forward to preaching, but yet it's a topic that uh, we, we can't avoid because to do so is to paint uh, an incorrect picture of the situation in which we find ourselves apart from God. Um, if you remember, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he really wasn't pulling any punches with his assessment of, uh, of the situation in the southern nation of Judah. Um, his chosen people had experienced a, a, a time of peace and prosperity, um, but during that time, and maybe as a result of it, they had rejected God, they had turned toward idols, they had really ceased uh, to, to be a people who administer justice in God's name. And so in short, they were, they were lost in sin. And, and, and while there were moments of hope and promises that God gave in the midst of that assessment, it, it was, I think, by and large, a, a, a difficult assessment to read, those first five chapters of Isaiah. And if you remember, chapter five ended with God raising the signal for nations to come upon his people as the result of their sin. It really was what their actions justly deserved. And so the question is, is there any other possible outcome that could take place? Is there any hope for God's people in light of what we saw in the first five chapters? That's really the question for this morning. So enter Isaiah the person. We're picking it up in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to go through Isaiah chapter 12. Chapter 6 is where we first come to interact with Isaiah the person himself. Uh, to this point in the first five chapters, it's been all about God's message spoken through Isaiah. Now, Isaiah's own story takes center stage for a bit. Um, and, and, it, and it might seem, it's a story in chapter 6 about Isaiah's commissioning, his calling from God. And it might seem better served to put that at the beginning of chapter 1, wouldn't it? I mean, that's how my mind would think. You know, let, okay, so Isaiah's giving these, uh, these prophecies from God. Who is he? What gives him the authority to do this? It seems like this would go well at the beginning of chapter 1. But... Because it is done the way it is done, a powerful message is being communicated here. Remember, chapters 1 through 5, they were relentless regarding the sin of God's people. And so in light of that, the surrounding nations have been summoned to attack and, and we're left with that question, is there any hope for God's people? And when we read Isaiah's story, we find a clue in that regard. So follow along with me in Isaiah chapter 6, and we will start in verse 1. 
It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and again, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken, from, taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I think it's easy to get caught up in that passage trying to imagine the scene that's unfolding. And that's not a bad thing, um, especially with the seraphim, right? I mean, uh, man, there's many throughout history that have, that have tried to visually represent the seraphim. And I've got a few pictures, Jake, if you want to put those up. Some of these, you can see some of them would be older representations, works of art that have been done. A couple of them are, are, are newer computer-generated um, depictions of what a seraphim might look like. Uh, it, it's going to be awe-inspiring. I'm, I'm sure none of those are right. But it's going to be awe-inspiring when that day comes, when we, when we are in heaven and we finally meet a seraphim. Uh, it's kind of just interesting to think about what that might be like, what they might um, visually look like. But as fun as it can be to think about things like this, what's a seraphim look like, I, I think it can cause us to miss some of the less exciting but probably more important details in this passage. What a seraphim looks like in the grand scheme of things isn't all that important. But there's some other stuff in here that, that we're told. First, Isaiah tells us in verse 1 that he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. Now, any Jew would have instantly known that that presents a problem. The fact that Isaiah saw the Lord because people were not allowed to see God. And we learn about this in, in Exodus chapter 33. In that chapter, God had just promised his people that his presence would go with them as they departed from Mount Sinai, as they departed from this place where they received the Ten Commandments, uh, where God had entered into covenant with them. Um, it, it really, it's a wonderful promise meant to bless the people. We're going to depart from this holy place, but I'm going with you. That's what God tells them. Well, Moses wanted a little bit more. Moses didn't just want God's presence to come, as awesome as that was. He wanted to see God in all his glory. And so he asked God, if, if he would fully show himself to Moses. And this was God's response. This is in Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 19. 
And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Man, sinful man, cannot see God's face and live. And Jews knew that. So back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. Right? And I think we can presume that this means he saw God in his glory. So you get to verse 5, and I think that's why Isaiah says what he says. He knows he's doomed. Woe is me. <laughs> I just saw the Lord, but Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he was a sinful man who dwelled among sinful people, and as a sinful man, his eyes had seen the king. And he knew, he was certain that there'd be a price to pay for that. Woe is me. But then, something incredible happens, verses 6 and 7. One of those seraphim came and took a burning coal from the altar, the altar where sacrifices for sins were made, and, and he took that coal to Isaiah, he touched his lips, and he was cleansed of his sin. It's pretty incredible. And, and, and not only is this an incredible story from the life of Isaiah, I think it's meant to be a hint regarding the sin of God's people as a whole. After those first five chapters, is there any hope? Is there any hope for God's people? Well, there was, there was hope for Isaiah. There was hope for Isaiah. He was given salvation from God. Perhaps the people would experience that too. Well, let's find out. Let's, let's see what happens. As we approach chapter 7, we kind of need to, to reset the, uh, the historical context just a bit. Uh, the peace and prosperity which God's people in southern Judah had experienced, that's a thing of the past now. Um, uh, they now faced threats from other nations. The nation of Assyria specifically was, was gaining power, gaining prominence in the world. Uh, it would soon become a superpower who would take over much of the world. And so as a result, many of the smaller nations in the world were, were seeking alliances with one another in order to protect themselves against this superpower, Assyria. So the northern nation of Israel, remember Israel was divided at this point, the northern nation of Israel had entered into such an alliance with nearby Syria to the north of them. Now, I know it's kind of confusing when you talk about Syria and Assyria, keeping them straight. Um, you can remember Syria is the shorter name, and it's also the smaller, weaker nation. Assyria is the longer name. It's the larger, more powerful, superpower nation. So if that kind of helps us keep them straight there. So Syria and northern Israel formed an alliance to protect themselves. And, and perhaps feeling emboldened by their alliance, they, they marched against southern Judah in order to kind of force them to join their alliance together. So what we have in chapter 7 is the southern nation of Judah needing to be delivered not only from their sin, like we've talked about in the first five chapters, but now they've got uh, this threat of attack 
from these two allied nations to the north of them. So the question still remains, is there any hope for God's people? Or maybe, is, is, is this what God is going to use to bring judgment upon his people? This, this alliance in the north, are they going to come down and bring judgment upon, Israel, upon southern Judah because of their sin? Well, at the beginning of chapter 7, the message from Isaiah is that God's people should not worry about Syria and northern Israel. They, they shouldn't worry. King Ahaz, the, the king of southern Judah, he quaked in fear, but he was told in verse 4, do not fear. God told him, do not fear. And, and in order to kind of help strengthen the faith of King Ahaz and of the people, God granted King Ahaz the opportunity in verse 10 of chapter 7 to ask him for a sign. Any sign. I, I mean, man, how awesome is that? God hands you a blank check. Say, what do you want me to do to prove that, that you don't have to fear? And, and you know, King Ahaz, I, I would assume it's in false humility, just refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. You know, I can't do that kind of a thing. But God decided to give them a sign anyway. He gave them a sign. And the sign that he gave was that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son named Emmanuel. And immediately bells and whistles start going off in our head, right? And we jump to Matthew chapter 1, and, and we're picturing the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's a great connection to make, but I want us to stay here for now. I want us to stay in Isaiah chapter 7 for now, because th this sign was given to King Ahaz. It was given at a specific time, at a specific point, for a specific reason. And yes, it was fulfilled, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but it had purpose here as well. So I want us to stay here, if we can, for a moment. Bible scholars agree that, that the first fulfillment of this sign probably took place right away. Uh, verses 15 through, uh, down through 17 go on and give some more details. And, and, and many believe that it was fulfilled when a young woman who was betrothed to Isaiah himself, that she gave birth to a son who was called Emmanuel. I mean, names had immense meaning at that point. And prophets were known to name their children based upon messages that God gave them. Now, I'm not trying to take anything away from the virgin birth of Jesus. Not a thing. Um, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this sign. But there was this sign given here to King Ahaz, to the people of southern Judah, given for a purpose, and there was a fulfillment for a purpose at that time. And, and the message was, even though Syria and northern Israel threatened, God was with them. Emmanuel. God was with them. And in fact, God went on to tell them what, what would take place. Assyria, the superpower, would indeed go on to attack this alliance in the north. They would attack Syria. They would attack northern Israel. And they would be victorious. So God's people didn't have to worry because God was sending Assyria to defeat that alliance up in the north. And even though Assyria had grand visions of coming down farther south and, and claiming victory over Judah as well, and, and chapter 8, verse 8 even says that they would, they would kind of sweep in and even, even go up to the neck of southern Judah. They weren't going to be victorious. They weren't going to be victorious. God's people in southern Judah would not be overcome. And, and two more times in chapter 8, verse 8 and verse 10, God 
reminds them that he is with them. Emmanuel, he is with them in the midst of, in the face of these threats and attacks. There's no question God's people deserved to face judgment. They deserved it. God could have brought that judgment through that alliance in the north. He could have. Instead, God gave them grace and he promised that he would be with them. They didn't have to fear. They could turn back to God and trust in him fully. All they had to do was humble themselves before God. And, and, and God went on and he gave even further details regarding what would happen both to northern Israel and then even to Assyria, this superpower. Um, if you look in chapter 9, verse 8, there's, there's a word spoken against northern Israel. Chapter 9, verse 8 uh, says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Uh, Ephraim was one of the tribes of northern Israel. Samaria was the capital of northern Israel. Quite often, those names refer directly to northern Israel. So Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Northern Israel was prideful. They were arrogant. You can hear it in that verse. Because of their pride and arrogance, they refused to humble themselves before God. And, and God tells southern Judah, well, here's what's going to happen. What's the result of this pride? Uh, the, look at the end of verse 12. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The end of verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. Uh, the end of verse 21. For all this, his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. Uh, chapter 10, verse 4, the end of that verse. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The arrogant refusal of northern Israel to repent of their sins brought about judgment from God. It should have been a warning to King Ahaz. It should have been a warning to the people of southern Judah what was taking place in the north there. But it's not just northern Israel, it's, it's Assyria as well. God told his people what would happen to Assyria. Uh, we see in chapter 10 that the king of Assyria was arrogant and prideful as well. Listen to chapter 10, uh, verse 13. This is the king of Assyria speaking. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one who gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. I mean, those words are dripping with pride. Can't you hear it from the king of Assyria? He took full credit for his victories. But what was the reality of the situation? Well, verse 15, and this is God speaking now. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, 
or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Assyria only had temporary victory because God allowed it, because God was, was working. Assyria was only the tool which God used to bring judgment upon unrepentant northern Israel. And their own pride would lead to their own downfall as well, their own judgment. The arrogance of Assyria should have been a warning to King Ahaz and to the southern nation of Judah. It should have prompted them to repent of their sin and humble themselves before God. And I would love to tell you that's what happened. I would love to tell you King Ahaz saw that, he saw God's grace offered to him and he received it and he and the people repented in humility. I would love to tell you that. But we know, um, we're not told in Isaiah, but we're told in the book of 2 Kings that Ahaz didn't reach out and he didn't receive God's grace that, would, uh, that was offered to him. He didn't repent, he didn't place his trust in God. Instead, in the face of that threat of the Northern Alliance, Ahaz reached out to Assyria, the superpower, and said, hey, let's make a deal. He, he sought protection from Assyria. He, he sought to buy protection. He emptied out the treasuries of the temple. He emptied out the treasuries of his palace. Um, it really was the defining moment in his reign as king, and, and it was not defining in a good way, not at all. And God knew all along. He knew how history would unfold. I mean, he's sovereign over all of it. He knew that while there were some brief moments of repentance and humility from his chosen people, that he knew eventually their sinful rejection of him would require that they be sent into exile. And for many of his people, their hearts were so hardened by sin. I mean, you, you see it with King Ahaz. Their hearts were so hardened that even exile wouldn't prompt them to repent of their sin. Even exile wouldn't do that. But for some, for some of God's people, for this remnant whom God would protect during exile, that they would return to God. They would experience his grace in their lives. And, and through them, God would extend grace to the world, to all sinful people in the world. You know, this, this section of Isaiah, which we are examining this morning, is, is full of, of warnings about pride. But there's also lots of promises of hope and grace as well, mixed in. We, we've already discussed one of them in chapter 7, this sign that God promised the virgin would be with child, would give birth to a son. They'd call him Emmanuel, God with us. And we know that was fulfilled fully and ultimately by Jesus with his birth in Bethlehem. Matthew even quotes Isaiah when he records that event. Uh, but there's more than that in this section. In, in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, there, there's another uh, promise we hear quite often. Uh, God promises that out of a time of darkness will be born a child who will uh, be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He says the, the, the government shall be on his shoulder. His, his reign will be marked by peace and justice and righteousness. Uh, man, what, what, what a message of hope that would have been 
to God's people, especially when they're being threatened by all these nations surrounding them. Now, and of course, we understand that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise as well comes through Jesus, comes through Jesus Christ. And there's more, chapter 10, uh, verses 20 through 23, God foretells, he talks about this remnant of his people that will be brought back from exile uh, rather than, than leaning on other nations for security and protection like King Ahaz did with Assyria. This remnant is going to lean on God. They're going to put their, their trust, their hope in God. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, God speaks about, about a shoot that will come out of uh, a stump of God's people. It's an interesting picture, a shoot coming out of a stump. Quite often, God refers to his people as this tree, but a tree that is cut down in judgment and, and only a stump is left. Well, that stump is the remnant, and out of that remnant is going to be a shoot and the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon that person and he will be defined by righteousness and faithfulness and he will bring about peace across the earth. And, and there's going to be this incredible turn of events. Remember, remember back at the end of chapter five, God raised the signal. He's calling the nations to come to bring judgment upon sin. But look what's going to happen when this shoot, when this branch, as it's often called as well, comes. In chapter 11, verse 12, he, speaking of the shoot, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, the signal is going up again, but it's not to the nations to come and bring judgment. The signal is going up that those who have been scattered among God's people might return, might come back to the promised land, might be his people there in that location once again. God's grace is, is being poured out among his people. It is being offered to them. And, and finally, in chapter 12, Verse one, remember, remember what happened to prideful, arrogant northern Israel? Remember God's anger was not turned away from them. We read that four specific times it said, my anger is not turned away. Well, when God extends grace to us and, and we humble ourselves before him, when we receive that grace, listen to what happens. Chapter 12, verse one. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That could have been King Ahaz. That could have been God's people at that time. Only they had received the grace that God offered to them. I mean, God told them they didn't need to fear those who were threatening to attack. He, you know, Ahaz could have humbled himself and, and placed his trust in God and found deliverance there. But he didn't. But even in the midst of that, because God is a God of grace, and even after his people rejected him again and again, 
He preserved a remnant through the exile so that he might pour out his love upon his people again. He raised up this shoot, and we know him to be Jesus, and it leads to that kind of testimony in chapter 12, verse 1. Right, it's this promise that even though difficult times were coming for God's people, and we're going to read about more of them as we go through this book, God's people would eventually find salvation in him once again. And it's all because, if you remember last week, the title of the sermon was Sin Runs Deep. And it was hammered home in the first five chapters, how deep sin runs. But this morning, the title of the sermon is that God's grace runs deeper. That even in the midst of that situation, God was working, God was offering grace. And not just to his people, but that is extended to us now as well. And so we can make the jump and apply that to our situation today. You remember I said last week, as as Americans, we are not God's chosen nation. We cannot unilaterally apply his promises given to Israel to ourselves. But I also said last week that as Christians, as people who've placed our faith in God, we are grafted into God's people. We, we, we are given this gift of grace from him. We, we can become part of God's chosen people because of his grace shown to us. So, so when we are unrepentant regarding sin, we are lost, just as the people were then. And we are on the road to judgment, just as the people were then. Um, the judgment maybe hasn't come yet, and that can deceive us at times, but the time will come because God is a just God, and, and the time eventually came for God's people who refused to repent. The time will eventually come for us as well if we remain in pride and in arrogance and refuse to repent. But as Isaiah said in chapter 12, verse 1, we can humble ourselves before God and receive his gift of grace. We can. We can receive what has been given to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when we do that, we can say also that though God was angry with me, his anger turned away. We can say that about our lives. We can also say, God is my salvation. All of these statements that are made there. We can also say that we will not be afraid. We can also say that God is our strength and our song. That, that, that's the blessing given to us. It's all possible because Jesus became human. He lived a perfect life. He sacrificed his life on the cross for our sin. And he rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. None of what I just said is, is because we earned it, right? God's grace is not because I've earned it or I'm good enough or, or anything like that. Every bit of it is because it's God's grace, <laughs> poured out upon humanity. It comes from his love. And, and so, so I urge you, if, if you've not done so before, to give serious consideration to the grace that God offers to you. Uh, that's hopefully what God's people would have done in this section. They hopefully would have looked at the situation of the nations surrounding them, and they would have 
recognized the judgment upon sin that was coming and they would have received God's grace. Ideally, that's what would have happened. And so, uh, you know, we like Isaiah, like God's people, we, we are, we are uh, sinners of unclean lips. But there's hope, right? There's grace extended to us. There was grace given to Isaiah and he accepted it. There was grace given to God's people. They didn't accept it, at least not initially. And there's grace, there's hope for you and me as well. The question is, will we receive that or not? My hope is that we will. My hope is that we will receive that gift of grace. And we do it by humbling ourselves, by repenting of our sin and, and trusting in God trusting in his love for us, receiving what it is that he offers to us. I would encourage you to think deeply about that today. Yeah, our sin runs deep. There's no question about that, but, but God's grace runs even deeper, and he offers it to us. And so I hope, I hope, I hope that, that we will, all of us, not just know it. It's one thing to know about God's grace, but to truly accept it and receive it to humble ourselves before him. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's give praise to God this morning for that grace that he offers. God, we stand before you this morning um, in many ways exactly like Isaiah. Uh, people of unclean lips. God, uh, we're sinners. We're, we're fallen. We're broken. And and. If you were to treat us, treat us justly, it would be in judgment. And God, I pray that, that we would recognize that, but that we would also recognize the grace that you offer. That there is hope. That the outcome for us doesn't have to be judgment upon our sin. That you've offered to take that for us. That you've given us of yourself. God, I pray that, uh, that, 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 would, that truth would sink deep within us and that it wouldn't just influence a, a one-time decision in our lives, but that it would impact every bit of who we are, that it would influence every decision that we make every day and every interaction that we have with others. God, may, may we be people who, who are filled to overflowing with your grace. We praise you for your love. God, we are truly a, a blessed people to be called your son and daughter, to, to be able to call you Abba Father is, is such a blessing and we're so thankful for that. We thank you for the grace that you give to us that we can do that. God, it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. We're going we're gonna to close this morning by, by singing songs of worship to God, and not just because that's what we always do after the sermon. I know that's what we always do after the sermon, but there's a reason that we do it. And, and I, think, uh, I think Isaiah chapter 12, the rest of chapter 12, says it perfectly this morning. So I just want to read the last four verses. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, 
Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So again, we sing now, not because it's next on the order of service, but we sing because God has done gloriously and he is great in our midst. So let's sing based on that this morning. <laughs> 